Good morning, brethren and sisters. At the risk of wearying you, may I just recall for you the um, idea um, upon which these addresses about Deuteronomy is based. Um, the idea is that in the book of Deuteronomy there are words of Moses which are so fundamental that they have a perpetual relevance to the people of God in every age and under all circumstances. That is to say, because Moses spoke on the basis of eternal principles, the application is ageless and timeless. It was true then, it is true now. And it is upon those principles that these addresses in Deuteronomy are based. Well now, we need to look at verses 11 and 12 of Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 verses 11 and 12 As an eagle that stirreth up her nest that fluttereth over her young he spread abroad his wings he took them he bare them on his pinions the Lord alone did lead him and there was no strange God with him Now the first thing to remark this morning is this that although Moses was a very great prophet he was at the same time a very great poet. It is a strange and wonderful thing brethren and sisters that the man who could not speak to Pharaoh because of his stumbling speech could describe the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of God's people in such telling and thrilling sentences as we find in Deuteronomy 32. It is the song of Moses, as it turned out, the swan song of Moses. Now we ought not to miss the point. This is divinely wonderful poetry. Now I know that there are some people in our community who despise poetry because they say it is unreal, it is sentimental. But you see, um, the truth is that poetry often gets to the heart of a matter in a telling and penetrating way when the use of plain and prosaic language would fail, or at least it would not illuminate the issue so clearly. Let me give you an example. You could say truthfully about the Messiah he will provide for and protect his people. That is true. How does Isaiah say it? He is like a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now those words have given new hope to all such as are tempest-tossed, parched and heavy laden. They are profound words and they have a profound effect upon all who trust in them. Or again, it could be said truly of God's people, 
that they will be strengthened and renewed. That's true. But how does Isaiah say it? He says they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Those words are poetry, and those words consequently stir the emotions, and when the emotions are stirred, so the will is energized. The first way of saying it is true, it's true, but it's cold and it's without emotion. It is the language of an accountant reading his balance sheet. A man once came to me and said that when he reads his balance sheet it's a very emotional affair. <laughs> we shall have to leave that. But the issue is, you see, that Isaiah's poetry touches us at the very deepest part of our soul and our heart. Let me just tell you, let me illustrate again. I knew a man in Christ Jesus, he's dead now. I knew a man in Christ Jesus who for 20 whole years lay paralyzed on his bed. Now you can imagine, can you not, with what hopefulness his soul brooded upon the great word of Isaiah which we have remembered and he used to ponder Isaiah's rhetorical method in those words that is the strange thing that Isaiah began with the most wonderful thing and ended with the most ordinary thing he began with mounting up with wings as eagles which is wonderful and he began and he finished with walking and not fainting which is ordinary and this poor paralyzed man he used to ponder how strange that was and said to me one day that for him just to be able to walk would be like mounting up as an eagle so that's what I mean the poetry of God through prophets and seers and psalmists it stirs the emotions and it affects people in the deepest part of their being now we shall have to leave Isaiah's that's a very interesting subject you know Isaiah's rhetorical method here and elsewhere but we shall have to leave it because we need to return to the issue that by poetry divinely inspired poetry the truth of God is magnificently revealed and so it is you see it, this is the point so it is in Deuteronomy 32 it is Moses' song and in those words he is setting forth the divine government in figures, in poetic figures. And one of those poetic figures that he uses, as we've seen already, is the leading of the eagle. Now I must tell you straight away 
that my knowledge of eagles is very limited. They are rather hard to come by in North Oxfordshire in England where we live. Those that I have seen thereabouts um, have not had anything to eat for 40 years and they are in glass cases. Can I tell you that watching them tells you very little. <laughs> Most of what I have learned about eagles I have learned from reading about them. But what I have read agrees precisely with what Moses says about their activities. Now we shall need to notice the words carefully in verses 11 and verse 10 and 12. And this is what I mean. Verse 11 reveals to us the activities of the eagles. But it does not tell us the purpose of those activities. We learn the purpose of the activities from verse 12 when we learn about the purpose of God. That is to say, we have to allow the first part of the declaration to be interpreted by the second part. This is rather a strange thing. The purpose of the eagles is revealed in the declaration about the purpose of God. The eagle is stirring up her nest, ho hovering over her young. The, the eagle is spreading abroad his wings, catching them and bearing them on his pinions. Now, why is the eagle acting thus? In order that he may lead the eaglet so that the eaglets may be taught and guided. Now it is evident when you take both the verses together that the ways of the Lord with his people are revealed by what is said concerning the eagles. How does God lead his people? Well, to return to the figure, he stirs up the nest. He hovers over his own. He spreads his wings before them. He catches them and carries them. This figure is a revelation of the way of God with his people. I have read, and I believe it is true, that eaglets, the young eagles, have a voracious appetite. And when they have been fed, they desire to sleep. I'm not going to suggest that sleep after feeding is something which is peculiar to eagles. Without being zoological, there are other species with the same habit. But it is a fact, it is a fact that disturbance is the very last things that the young eaglets want when they have fed. And it is the very thing that the parent eagles insist on. The young birds are turned out of the nest. They are, they are compelled to strive for elevation. And when they drop, they are caught by the father eagle as they flutter and as they fall. So they are borne on the pinions of the father bird. The mother bird disturbs and hovers. I don't want you to draw any wrong conclusions from that. The mother bird disturbs and hovers. 
It's the father bird who swoops and catches, catches the young as they falter. So let's mark the poetry of this wonderful declaration. It's the method of God leading his people. Let's think first of all then of what it's telling us. Let's think first of all of disturbance. As an eagle that stirreth up her nest. And then assurance. The assurance that love will protect the disturbed ones as they falter. That broodeth over her young. And then the call that those who are disturbed shall find their real purpose uh, that they might be taught to fly he spread abroad his wings and finally that in all the process of the adventure with the parent birds there is absolute safety he took them he bare them on his pinions the leading of the eagle and here you see in this figure is the providential elements of God governing his people. So let's retrace our steps then and ponder it in the light of the poetic revelation of Moses. Let's obey the suggestiveness of the illustration. Think first of all of disturbance. I'm just going to remind you of a sentence in the first chapter of Deuteronomy verse 6. You'll remember it well. Just one sentence. Deuteronomy 1 verse 6 God speaking through Moses says suddenly to his people the Lord our God spoke unto us in Horeb saying ye have dwelt long enough in this mountain ye have dwelt long enough in this mountain the mountain was Sinai and they'd been there for just over a year and they were settling down to the privilege of the new covenant it was the place of protection, it was the place of blessing and they were content to stay there and they were beginning to enjoy the peace and stability of their new life and then quite suddenly, Moses is recalling it now you see quite suddenly um, the commandments to strike their tents came and they were to be on their move uh, ye have dwelt long enough in this mountain and the reason, the reason, well they will never possess the land except they turn and face the wilderness and so Israel turns towards the wilderness that untrodden territory that always lies always lies between the place of vision and the good land and it tells us that when God speaks there is no room for dispute or for deferment the the omnipotent Lord holds no conference the providential care of Yahweh offers no explanation it was so with Abraham suddenly God said to him get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into the land which I will show thee he does not ask us if it's convenient the call may come at a most inauspicious time but come it does but we can be sure of one thing it does not come arbitrarily God never disturbs merely for the sake of causing a disturbance every movement has its purpose every change is fraught with love there would be no progress if there were no stirring up of the nest 
God is more concerned for people's progress than for their comfort. Say what you will, this is God's method. He breaks in upon people in unexpected ways, perchance at unwelcome times, leads us by unknown paths. He broke in upon Abraham in Ur. He broke in on Jacob in the house of Laban. He broke in on Moses in Horeb. As heaven willed, men who trusted God moved and wrought. In every true life there is the same witness. God leads his people like an eagle. In the midst of the leading, it may not be so evident. When you are in the midst of the leading, the decision is not so evident. And yet, tomorrow brings the explanation of the past. The next day we find the key to solve the mystery of yesterday and today. Of course, men without faith are blind to the unseen power that directs their lives. Unbelief judges by fragments. Men of faith, on the other hand, take the long view. They see the providential care of God disturbing, provoking, and bearing his people forward. Who is it that settles a man's habitation and his calling? Why did we leave where we were? Why have we come to where we are? Who brought us to this place? There may be no light beyond the next step, and yet there is the assurance that the untrodden way would lead us to where we ought to be. Sinai may be very good, but Canaan is much better. Our plans are broken down. Our highest motives have to be recast and reconsidered. Our service is diverted. Our intentions are changed. Our very strength sometimes is turned to weakness so that we may, may know the truth about ourselves and our will and our willfulness. The warmth and comfort of the nest is one thing, but God is a God who does not keep his people in cotton wool all the time. He takes away the props so that they may stand upon their own feet with his help. He wants them to have salt in themselves. Come back to the figure then. Watch the young eaglets as they struggle in the air, twisting and falling in an element to which they are not yet accustomed and for which they are not ready and for which perhaps they are not really used. Suddenly the peace and safety of the nest is gone and they are perplexed as an eagle stirreth up her nest. But not mark the next step. It seems as though they will be lost. They will fall and they will be lost. And then suddenly the eagle swoops. The parent eagle swoops as swift as lightning and catches them on his broad wings. And the children are borne back on the mother wings to the ledge and the safety of the nest. It happened today, it will happen again tomorrow and the next day. And as the progress advances, so the eaglets day by day and bit by bit they gain assurance until one day they will not struggle. One day, with, one day they will spread their wings and they will mount up. They will mount up with the parent birds towards the sun. If the eagle was left undisturbed in the security of the nest, the latent powers which are divinely natural in the eagle would never be realized and fulfilled, 
and the law of the eagle would never be obeyed. And so with advancing assurance, the young become what God, their creator, intended they should become. And when a man comes to realize that in the disturbance of God there is progress, he is consequently assured. Bit by bit, there is the certainty that by this very method, the powers of his life, the latent powers of his life, are being developed. Step by step, the process enables a man to discover how he may use the very forces which are for him divinely natural. God bears such a one on his pinions in the hour of weakness and in the hour of perplexity. And with humble but increasing confidence, that man's soul comes to be at rest and his spirit is at peace. You see, brethren and sisters, if I may put it to you plainly, piety on crutches is no good. Life in leading strings is not the same as following the leading of God. Circumstantial goodness is not the same as righteousness. In the end, religion is a personal thing. One man's faith is for himself. It cannot really be shared with another. Any man can be true, I suppose, when the sun is shining and all is well and life is comfort and joy. Of necessity, our discipleship calls for independence, courage and sacrifice. We are not here to mould ourselves with the world, but as far as we are able, we are here to master it. And so the men of God have to learn to face the tempest. They have to be prepared to be buffeted by the storms. They are ready to mount upward and get above the forces which otherwise and apart from God would bring them to their doom. And so, as the eagle stirs up the nest and will not permit the young to fall into lethargy and sleep, and when they are full and satisfied, so the Lord disturbs his loved ones. He contradicts their cherished plans. He exposes them to forces which develop their character. He puts strength into their spiritual powers. He turns weakness into strength at last, so that as the eagle fulfills the law of the eagle which God has placed upon it and within it, so men fulfill the law of manhood once perfectly revealed in the man of Nazareth and enjoined upon all those who have taken his name and seek to follow his discipline. And apart from that one lonely man whom you seek to follow, all life is exposed. Apart from him, all life is hard and dry and cold. And as Isaiah told it, so it is true. He is the refuge, the river, and the rock. God's eagle methods are exercised to make us to be like him, to become to others what he is to us. Of course, men, men who are ignorant of this, men who are men of unbelief, they... They cannot understand it. They, they cannot understand how God, how God can disturb those whom he loves. They say, if, if God were really governing your life, would he allow you to be so disturbed? 
Would he separate you from such a sacred relationship, shall we say? Would he, would he terminate such a successful venture? They cannot understand it. But men of faith understand it. More than once they've come to realize that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They know that those who are following the leading of the eagle are sojourners in tents. They are people ready to strike at any moment and to move forward and onward. And in the moving forward and in the moving onward there is assurance. Such experience brings deeper conviction. In their hearts, step by step, day by day, they are coming, becoming more deeply aware that they are moving on the eagle wings of God that somehow they are enwrapped by the great motherhood of God. Were you shocked? Have I just shocked you? The motherhood of God? Every word in the Bible is important. Did you notice the pronouns in those two verses we read first of all as an eagle stirreth up her nest that fluttereth over her young and then he spread aboard his wings and took them he bare them on his pinions can I recall for you something in Isaiah 66 verse 13 as one whom his mother comforteth so will I comfort you and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem as one whom his mother comforteth the motherhood of God and the fatherhood of God are merged. Have you seen it? They are merged in the leading of the eagle. And such as are God governed in this way, in their discipleship, they learn to venture with the motherhood and the fatherhood of God in faith. In the first chapter of Deuteronomy verse 31 you can read this Moses said to the people Deuteronomy 1 verse 31 he said thy God bear thee as a man doth bear his son who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in now that's a very interesting sentence thy God doth bear thee as a man beareth his son who went before thee in the way to seek a place to pitch thy tents in if we understand that rightly brethren and sisters it means that even the pitching of the tent at night is not accidental that in some way God has gone before us in some sense he has inspected the terrain he has appointed the place of rest 
according to Moses God bears his people as a man bears his son with, with infinite patience with tender compassion accommodating his strength to their weakness waiting for them in their slowness halting with them in their perplexity as a man bears his son what is the effect of this God-governed life upon a man of faith a man conscious of the leading of the eagle well I put it to you as it appears to me the effect of this upon a man's life it appears to me he will become a man who is undisturbed because he is always ready to be disturbed now having spoken that sentence there is a counterpart precisely in the New Testament I bring you to Luke chapter 12 remember what I said a man who is undisturbed because he is always ready to be disturbed Luke chapter 12 verse 35 let your loins be girded about and your lamps burning and be ye yourselves like unto men who wait for their Lord that when he shall return from the feast when he cometh and knocketh they may straightway open unto him blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching verily I say unto you that he will gird himself and make them sit down to meet and shall serve shall come and serve them and be ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord can I read you that sentence from the revised version of the Bible and ask you to notice one difference and be ye yourselves like unto men looking for their Lord now to me that is better than the authorised version because looking is better than waiting waiting seems to me to have, it, have about it the sense of quiescent inactivity whereas about looking there is a sense of serene eagerness a situation where there is no need if disturbance should come for a sudden and hasty scraping together of a welcome for the returning Lord but instead a serene and thankful opening of the door with a quality of immediateness because every day they were ready to be disturbed do you see that? every day they were ready to be disturbed every day they were ready for the knock and every day they were ready 
for the coming. Why? Because every day the welcome was prepared and renewed. A man who was undisturbed because he was always ready to be disturbed. Now it means that life lived on this level, brethren and sisters, where men are looking for their Lord in this spirit. It means that finality on any, de on any level is never reached. For example, men who understand the leading of the eagle, they can never say, I am satisfied, life is realized. A man can never say, I will rest here under this juniper tree and I will die. At least, I will rest here under this juniper tree till I die. The only hour of satisfaction and finality for such a man is in the hour when the Lord is come. That man has looked into the Lord's face and that man has been changed into his Lord's likeness. And it means that all the hopes and all the intentions and all the ambitions must be made subservient to the one great hope and the one great ambition. It means that every intention shall be unrealized if the disturbance which halts its realization is the glad hour when the Lord himself has appeared. It is a recognition that every goal will be lost and cancelled for the sake of following the eagle and at last crossing into Canaan. And therefore, my dear comrades, ideally, and I am obliged to say ideally, it is a life where all fear is checked and every tremor is hushed to rest. In a life so God-governed, panic is outlawed. It illuminates, it illuminates every hour of sorrow. It soothes every agony. It lights with glory every dark cloud. In the day of frightfulness, a man's heart is fixed. Fear may assault, but fear cannot master. Sorrow may invade, but it cannot destroy. A man may rise up in the morning and read his daily newspaper and know that the things which are temporal are being shaken and coming to their end. And he will go out to do his duty and he will not be afraid because that he believes in his deepest heart that somehow he is preceded by the God of the universe. He is in the leading of the eagle. In some mysterious way he is being borne upon the wings of the eagle God. It is therefore a life dependent upon the unseen. A life that waits calmly for the disturbance of God. Loin skirt, lamps burning, ready for the commanding word. Ye have dwelt long enough in this mountain. or it may be the final shout and the trumpet of God. This, I put it to you then, must affect a man's discipleship. It must result in a sincere, um, a sincere separation to the Lord's will, a, a glad submission to his commandments. Oughtn't it to give immediateness and thoroughness to every piece of work that we do in his name? God knows he may disturb us either 
intermediately or finally he may disturb us and the one thing he has commanded us to do may not be done and the exhortation is therefore let me do it whilst there is opportunity let me do it now whilst I am here redeeming the time because the days are evil before the time is gone and I be found to have neglected the one thing that he has called me to fulfill and when he scrutinizes my life I am ashamed and then I put it to you it ought to make us patient what I mean is we ought to have a sense of patience in our souls and patience with our comrades in the faith as well patience with God not going before him to lead but to follow after not writing his calendar for him and fixing the day when he will send our Lord Jesus Christ patience does not say because this Lord of ours is coming I therefore have no responsibility for the man next door who is in need of the gospel patience does not say um, because the Lord is coming I am unconcerned about the agony of the world in need of redemption patience does not say because the Lord is coming I cannot be bothered about that man out in the streets of Durban who has lost the nature of the consciousness of what he ought to be like patience is haste upon the king's business led by the eagle upward and sunward restful haste peaceful speed graceful diligence this is the ideal conception of a God-governed life an eagle-led life can I tell you something your speaker is half ashamed to tell you that too often the ideal is lost with me the goal is abandoned and in the clear shining of the eagle way I take the way which is wrong can I speak therefore a word of encouragement you I, I feel you'll be saying to yourselves this man from Oxford he is a scourge can I therefore speak to you a word of encouragement I know a man who had been in the wilderness for years and it nearly broke his heart and he nearly lost his grip on the truth he was disturbed he was perplexed he was baffled and I want you to think about his case he's dead now his name was Asaph and his story is in Psalm 77 would you like to know about it? Psalm 77 
story of poor Asaph. Notice how it begins. He says, I will cry unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he will give ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night and slacked not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and I was disquieted. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Though behold this, mine eyes watching. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit may diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favourable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercy? And I said, This is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will make mention of the deeds of the Lord. I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate also upon thy work and muse on thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is a great God like unto our God? Thou art the God that doeth wonders. Thou hast made known thy strength among the nations. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee, they were afraid. The depths, they trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Thy way was in the sea, and thy paths in the great waters, and thy footsteps were not known. Thou ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well now, if you were looking at those words carefully, you would notice that in the first nine verses of Psalm 77, poor Asaph's life is a perpetual mystery. It's heavy with agony, it's full of perplexity as words come tumbling out. So many personal pronouns. Do you know in the first ten verses you'll find eleven references to God and twenty-two personal references to Asaph. That marks the condition of his soul. Nothing was right, everything was dislocated, the picture was uncertain, the definition was clouded, all was out of focus. That was his view of life in the first nine verses but here is a strange thing did you mark his view of life in the last nine verses it's the same picture the very same picture but how differently he sees it the man who first said hath God forgotten to be gracious doth his promise fail forevermore he is now saying in verse 13 thy way O God is in the sanctuary who is so great a God as our God Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people. The man who was full of despair and desolation in the midst of his perplexing life is now in the midst of the very same life 
full of hope and encouragement, marching with his head held high, singing the song of redemption and deliverance, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the antagonism, in spite of all his perplexity, he is marching on to victory, and he is singing not because the adversity has ceased, um, he, uh, but because for some reason the adversity does not matter anymore. For some reason he has found the true focus. Now what is the explanation? Because quite suddenly it looks as though he, if I may use a, an a illustration, as though he has turned the telescope and suddenly the, the dislocation has gone, suddenly everything has come into focus. What happened to Asaph to change his life from, a, from darkness to light, from one who nearly lost his grip on the truth to one who will not let it go come what may? Surely we ought to be interested in that. Well now, I don't know what happened. But whatever it was, I'm prepared to believe it came from God. That is to say, it was part of the process of the leading of the eagle. The result was that Asaph saw something and understood something which hitherto he had not understood. He saw something which hitherto he had missed. A realization of something which in his despair he had not understood. As though in a moment, suddenly, he made the adjustment and the vision was in true focus. Now that something, whatever it was, is referred to in verse 10. If you can remove the italics, if you can remove the words in, the, in italics which have been put in to help us, but which, in my judgment, do not help us, if you can forget those for the moment and read it as it was written, Asaph said, And I said, This is my infirmity, the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now whatever that means, this it was that put the picture into focus. Now let's be sure of one thing at least. The years referred to here are not the years of God's life. The years referred to in verse 10 are the years of Asaph's life, not the years of God's life. God's, God's existence is outside human time. The psalmist here is speaking of his own years, measured in his own mind, known in his own experience. And what he's saying, it seems to me, is this. This infirmity of mine, those perplexing years in my life, they really belong to God. They've been all the time in the power of his right hand. What I thought to be mischance, bad luck, fate, have been years that were moulded, conditioned, guided, fashioned by the right hand of God. All the time God has known it. This has been his pattern, made within the orbit of his will and his purpose, conditioned within the realm of his law and his righteousness. All those years when poor Asaph didn't know God had been working in his life, doing and willing of his good pleasure, leading him like an eagle to the place of assurance and safety.